Welcome to Confronting Empires. Let's begin with a bird's eye view of the Jewish people. So the Jews, as a family, go down to Egypt. They're there for 210 years. There's the Exodus, the giving of the Torah. The Jews come to Eretz Yisrael, to the land of Israel, where they are going to fulfill their purpose of actually being the role model of what it means to have a godly home in this world. The Jews will live in Eretz Yisrael for approximately 950 years. Altogether, one country, one language. They're going to have one experience with exile, and that will be the Assyrian Empire conquering the northern kingdom, taking those Jews into exile. That's the ten lost tribes. Within three or four generations, they are no longer identifiably Jewish. They have not had a connection with Torah leaders, and they were lost. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon eventually conquers the Assyrians. So he's taken over all this territory. Quick geography lesson, we're talking about the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey. Nebuchadnezzar has conquered all of that territory, and Eretz Yisrael, Malchus Yehuda, the kingdom of Judah, is in his way. He attacks he takes 10,000 people into exile. Those 10,000 people consist of scholars, artisans, nobility, wealthy people, and these are the people that are taken into exile. Nebuchadnezzar is showing off, but he gives them the freedom to establish themselves as a Jewish community. 18 years later, when Nebuchadnezzar decides to completely destroy Eretz Yisrael, destroy the Beis HaMikdash, wipe Yerushalayim off the face of the earth, take all of the people in chains into exile in Bavel. Those Jews come to Bavel, they're sitting by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat and wept. Their mood is very somber. They're saying, how are we ever going to survive? Look at our cousins, Malchus Yisrael, the kingdom of Israel. They disappeared. That's it. We're done. It's over. But when they come to Bavel, because of the community that has already been established there, they are now able to survive. Not only do they survive, survive, they thrive, they do very well. Nebuchadnezzar rules, his, his family rules for approximately 55 years. One of the countries within the empire, Persia, has slowly been building up its forces, and eventually they are going to conquer and take over the empire. And the next exile happens where the Jews are now under Persian rule. One of the first things that Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, does is that he issues a proclamation that the Jews may return, go back up to Jerusalem, and rebuild their home for God, rebuild the temple. This is tremendous news. It's very exciting. But at the same time, only approximately 5% of the Jews are ready to go. 42,000 Jews, with Zerubbabel, who was the prince of the Jewish people. He's the grandson of the exiled king. The rest of the Jews who stay in Bavel are supportive. They give money and uh, silver and so on. They just don't want to actually leave their country, which they've grown to love. They're comfortable. They have their two-donkey garage. They speak the language. They don't feel like giving it all up to go back to Eretz Yisrael, where there is significant challenge similar to what we know of, of modern uh, pioneers, 
hostile neighbors, tremendously barren land, and so on. So they support the returnees, but they don't go themselves. Zerubbabel and the Jews come to Eretz Yisrael, and yes, they find very, very challenging conditions. The prophets who go with them, the last three prophets, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, they guide the Jews in uh, establishing the correct spot for the Mizbeach, for the altar, and temple services are restarted. The Beis Hamikdash has not been built yet, but at least they begin. Now, the hostile neighbors that are all around, they're like, who are these Jews coming back? And chief amongst them were the Samaritans. These were people who were brought in 200 years earlier when the Jews were exiled by the Assyrians. The Assyrians also brought in strangers into Eretz Yisrael. And these people have been living here for 200 years now, and they said, like, we're the real deal. So they said to Zerubbabel and to the other leaders, we want to participate. We want to be part of building this temple. And Zerubbabel realized that we cannot have this mixing. These are not Jews. There is no way that we can uh, you know, do this in partnership. The Samaritans got very angry. And their way of dealing with this was to send messengers to Cyrus to say that the Jews are planning a rebellion. They're not building a temple. What they're doing is stockpiling uh, weapons and money and so on to make a rebellion. So we might have said that Cyrus is Cyrus the Great, but he wasn't that great because he did not check into the story. There's a whiff of trouble. He said, okay, the building is over, finished, end of story. And he rescinded his permission to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. And here are the Jews uh, facing challenges physically, spiritually, and their, their goal, their, like, this is our, our, our focus, was taken away from them. So you can imagine that things were uh, very challenging for them at that moment. At this time, the Jews in Persia, they're doing great. And this is when the story of Purim happens. They've been doing so well. They have become so acclimated. They're so part of the culture of Persia that they cannot possibly imagine that a decree could be made against them. And this is a pattern that we find repeated again and again. We're in a good country, has its challenges. The challenges are spiritual. How do we maintain our identity and our separateness while being good citizens of the country that we're in? So we know how Purim ends. The Jews were saved. It's very important to understand the far-reaching implication of the fact that it's sages who are now really guiding the people, no longer prophets. After the story of Purim, the last prophets in Eretz Yisrael say to the Jews, it's time to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. They realize that the period of prophecy is ending because when they were young, they were sort of apprenticed to other Nevi'im. That intense level of spirituality is no longer being felt. There are no young people rising up in the ranks to be prophets. But they were there. They said, now is the time to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. And the Jews, although it was frightening to do it because they didn't have permission, they did start to rebuild, and permission was eventually given to them to continue and to finish. So this is very exciting that the Beis HaMikdash was actually completed. But the building of the Beis HaMikdash, unfortunately, did not remedy the challenges that the Jews were facing, the physical challenges and even more so the spiritual challenges. The rate of intermarriage was exceptionally high. Even the sons of the Kohen Gadol had intermarried. Shabbos was no longer being kept. Torah learning was almost non-existent. 
back in Persia, Ezra, Hasofer, Ezra the scribe, who had a high position of authority in the Persian government, heard what was going on. He could not leave before that he, because his teacher, the student of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu, the prophet, was still alive. But once he passed away, Ezra said, now I have to go back to Eretz Yisrael. I have to help. I cannot stay in my comfortable position in Persia. I have to go back there. And he got permission from the king to go to Eretz Yisrael. It says that when he came to Eretz Yisrael, he tore his clothes, he put on sack clothes. In other words, such a level of mourning because of the challenges and the really, really low level of what he found when he came to Eretz Yisrael. And his, his sorrow and his heartbreak was so clear that the Jews started to respond to him and he started to teach and he started to write Torah scrolls and he put his heart and soul into teaching the Jews. He recognized that the lack of learning, the lack of knowledge, the lack of Torah, of accessibility to Torah was key to the crisis that was happening in Eretz Yisrael. And he started to make headway. However, there was a whole other component. Yerushalayim was an open city. It was still uh, in, in very, very bad situation. The, there was really no protection, and the Jews were struggling. There were, of course, like in, in, in any other time and place, there were some people that took advantage. So the economic, physical situation was very, very challenging. Eventually, another great person, Nehemiah, who was an officer also by Daryavej, finally got permission to be able to come to Eretz Yisrael and help. As a matter of fact, he was appointed to be the governor. That means that he actually had the power and the wherewithal to enforce certain things, to make certain actual physical changes. The first thing that he did when he came to Eretz Yisrael and he recognized the situation, took a, you know, a view of what's going on, he realized that the walls must be rebuilt. The, the perspective of the other people to the Jews and the Jews to themselves, that they were unprotected, had to be changed. And so he organized groups of people to be working at different parts of the wall simultaneously. But more than that, he organized like an army to be guarding the people who were working because what all the surrounding neighbors were doing was they were constantly attacking, sabotaging, so that building could not go on. Ezra, Nehemiah, I'm sorry, had it so well organized that the wall was rebuilt around Yerushalayim in 52 days. It's a record. We should get the building departments to pay attention. The wall was rebuilt in 52 days, and finally the gates were put in, and now Yerushalayim was a city like other cities. It's, you know, head held up, and the Jews themselves, once they felt that we have a protected walled city, now were able to take stock of their spiritual development, and they recognized how far they had sunk, how, how low their level was, and they themselves, they, they, they did a tremendous, a tremendous level of tshuva, of recognizing um, the wall was finished in Elul, that Rosh Hashanah, there was a tremendous outpouring of repentance, but Ezra and Nehemiah comforted them and said, you, you're, you're turning up, you can change this, you could turn this around, and it says that that sukkah was one of tremendous rejoicing and tremendous um, outpouring of, of 
you know, happiness and joy that we are going to improve. And after that, at the end of Tishrei, this is what we call the bris amana. They made a new covenant where they committed to no more intermarriage. They sent everybody away that we're going to keep the laws of Shabbos. The walls of Yerushalayim will be closed. We will adhere to Shemitah. Nehemiah was able, also able to implement, because he was the governor and he had that control, to be able to um, make sure that there was that loans were uh, were were not um, you know that, that people were not being sold or, or subjugated to any kind of uh, uh, challenges because they could not pay back loans. He instituted economic reforms so that everybody could actually earn a living and that there weren't people taking advantage of uh, poorer people and so on. So once that physical and spiritual turnaround started to happen, Eretz Yisrael really started to develop under Persian rule. The economy grew. Jews were be, uh, able to become farmers. This is the preferred, um, what Hashem wants, but the, the, the role of a farmer is that I must lift my eyes to the heavens to rely on Hashem. It's not because of how brilliant and what kind of business do you like to make. And the whole situation started to turn around. The Jews are successfully farming. They're beginning to import. They're becoming self-sufficient. Torah learning is flourishing. And Eretz Yisrael is really look, looking up. But here we have to give credit to the understanding of Ezra and Nehemiah and other great sages of the day where they said, this is today, right now, Baruch Hashem, we're in a good spot. But we are still, to a certain extent, in exile. That means we're under the Persian Empire. And right now we have a benevolent king. But there are Jews living in Eretz Yisrael. There are Jews living in Babel. There are Jews living in Persia. There are Jews living in Turkey. There are Jews living in Egypt. There are Jews all over. There are scholars here. There are scholars there. There are sages all over. And who knows what's going to happen in the next generation? What's the next king going to be like? And remember the prophecies, there will be future exiles. And Jews will be spreading out more. And they recognized that we must make certain institutions that will make Torah accessible and transportable to wherever Jews are going to be with the Beis HaMikdash in Eretz Yisrael, in Bavel, or even further. And so the Anshe Knesset Hagdola was established. This is like the super Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish court, the Jewish legislative body, which uh, decides on Jewish halacha, on law, how Jews need to live. The Anshei Knesset Hagdolu was like a super Sanhedrin where they recognized that right now we need to put into place certain takane, certain ordinances that are going to go beyond today, beyond this time. A few of those uh, focused on, number one, the written Torah. They said the written Torah needs to be sealed. We need to establish this is what's part of the written Torah so that later on no one could come and say, oh, well, this book, oh, that book, and what we call Tanakh, the five books of Torah, the Nevi'im, and the writings were canonized by the Anshek Nesagdola. They established pu public Torah readings so that every Jew has access during market days to be able to hear words of the Torah. They uh, established that the Jewish court should be open to market days. They talked about Shabbos, for example. There have to be laws guarding Shabbos and guarding other Torah laws. Mukta, making Kiddush, and so on. Things that make it clear how the halacha, how the law has to be carried out. 
a key thing was Torah of Alpeh, the oral Torah, which is something that um, the Jews have always understood, that the oral Torah is part of the written Torah. But in Eretz Yisrael, the first 950 years where we're there, everybody again, the same place, father to son, it's, there's a very clear understanding of how the process works. But now that Jews are spread around, and there are sages in different places, there had to start to become a more formal way, a formal process by which Torah Shabal Peh can be uh, followed through. And the concept of a Mishnah, sort of like almost like a mnemonic device, was more implemented through the Anshek Nessus Agdola. And finally, there was the concept of prayer. Every Jew has a responsibility to have a relationship with Hashem every day, to ask Hashem for what I need, to thank Hashem, and so on. However, now Jews are living all over. Not everybody speaks Hebrew. Not everybody has access to send money for karbanos to the Beis Hamikdash. What's the right way to say it? What's the right way to do it? What's the protocol? And so they wrote Shemona Esrei, which has the whole format of what needs to be included in order for me to say that I am truly having a relationship with Hashem, and this became the foundational basis of prayer and some other structures that they put into place, all with the intention that Jews have a connection to Torah wherever they are, whenever they are, however they are. And because of their ordinances, we have been able to survive till today because they put into place the structures of what it will look like for Jews not living in Eretz Yisrael. And all this was done during the course of the Persian Empire, where they had a great amount of freedom to be able to do this, and a great amount of freedom to be able to have a peaceful life so that they could devote their energies to setting up this structure. And that's what brings us to be able to exist today.